How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. X-Lapsed is back. This is episode 186 of X-Lapsed, and uh, yeah, I got my delivery. So uh, we are back in business, at least for the next couple of weeks. I would like to thank everyone for um, all their kind words about the uh, substitute program I've been putting on for the past few days here in the Essential X-Lapsed. It's been a lot of fun going back to the Silver Age. I'm looking forward to getting back to it again when we... uh, when we get through this month's shipment, so um, I hope you are as well. And again, thanks uh, to everyone for the kind words about that little project. So yes, original recipe X lapsed is back, and that's the good news. Um, uh, the maybe not so good news is today is Excalibur Day. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Excalibur Volume Four, Number Twenty. It's at a June 2021 cover date. Stories called No Pity from Your Friends. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe, colors Eric Garshaniga, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Pisa White Sapolsky, cover price $4. This one went on sale April 7 of 2021. Now, um, when I got my shipment just the other day, uh, this issue was right on top of the next issue of Hellions we're going to discuss. And, um... Oh boy, I mean, if we're going to get all these covers with uh, Betsy and Quinan on the cover, can we Can we just not? <laughs> I mean, oh, can we just move past this little feud, uh, this... I hate to use the word frenemy, but uh, I, I guess that's kind of what we're stuck with now. Anyway, let's get into the issue itself here. Now, we open in the way back when, and we're in Doncaster, England, where rebellious and angsty teenager Alice McAllister is tromping into the house around 4 a.m., her mother's waited up for her and would have words with her about where she's been and what she's been getting up to. Alice is quick to jump on the whole, I never asked to be born sort of attack, and uh, she even threatens to commit suicide because she hates her life so much. Her mother kind of brushes this off, which may suggest to us that maybe this is a regular threat, or that maybe she just doesn't quite know how to wrap her head around such a thing. Now, a bit later, Mum heads upstairs to Alice's room with two pieces of very burnt toast. Inside the room, the bedroom, Alice is dead. Well, she appears to be dead. What actually happened here was that her mutant powers had just kicked in, and, uh, well, I mean, she's Malice, um, so Malice is Alice, and Alice is Malice. And so, while Mum cradles Alice's body, we see her malicious spirit leaving the room via window. And we can clearly see here that she's wearing the Malice choker necklace, and, uh, you know, it made me actually flip back a couple of pages to see how obvious this was. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, they did a really good job obscuring her neck so it wouldn't, like, give this bit away right away. So, re- really well done there. 
info page all about that malice. And I'm not going to go into her history just yet because toward the end of the show, we're going to break off a little bit of fake-ass comics history. So uh, stay tuned for that. Next up, a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Betsy Britton, Rogue, Jubilee, Emma Frost, Psylocke, Charles Xavier, and Magneto. We're back to comics, and we got Betsy Britton addressing the Quiet Council. Professor X commends her for returning from her otherworldly death. He thanks the heavens that this issue won't be taking place there. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's me. That's me who's thanking the heavens for that. Uh, he also tells her that she fought bravely for Krakoa. Now, Mr. Sinister decides to be his sassy self by informing Betsy that Iska the Unbeaten has been invited to stay. And he wonders aloud what might happen should they run into each other at the Green Lagoon. Iska's here? I, I thought she was on Arako. And, and thought, like, Krakoa was like a nation of numbskulls. Maybe Sinister just means that she's on Earth? Which, um, doesn't totally rule out her showing up at the Green Lagoon, but it doesn't make it all that likely either. Anyway, Betsy tells the Council that she doesn't want to take up too much time. Yeah, right, uh, actions speak louder, Bets. Uh, you know, try letting us have an issue where we're not dealing with 31 flavors of purple-haired captains here. She also mentions that there's a gala coming up, and indeed, this is the final issue of Excalibur before the gala. Kitty tells her not to worry about getting all dolled up, because Jumbo Carnation will help her sort all that out. Sebastian Shaw attempts to outsass Sinister by reminding everyone that England, or Great Britain, or the UK, whichever term I'm supposed to use, well, whoever they are, they're not all that happy with their absentee captain. The Brits all assume that Betsy's just off vacationing on Krakoa. Storm mentions that her royal wyness also isn't happy, but really, I mean, have we ever seen her happy? And also, who, who gives a crap? The subject then turns to otherworld resurrections, and we're reminded that Rockslide and Gorgon are forever changed. Despite the fact that it's been like six months and we still haven't seen Gorgon once. And I'm not even sure we've seen Rockslide since the Festival of Swords ended, so I mean... Yeah, at least they're still in our thoughts. Xavier tells Betsy that she's got to smooth things over with Saturnine. Since, you know, there is a Krakoan gate to Otherworld, and, uh, well, children might accidentally wander in there. Kind of like what's going on over in New Mutants right this very minute. So, Xavier lays it out this way. It's either cool things off with Saturnine, or we shut down the Otherworld gate. To which I ask, ooh, ooh, do I get a vote? Because I know which way I'm voting. Now, Betsy assures Charles that it's safe. After all, the gate's at her house, you know, the, the Braddock Lighthouse. Magneto chimes in to state that Excalibur will stand guard until all this blows over. Xavier adjourns the meeting, and Betsy is approached by Emma Frost. Emma inquires about Krakoa's newest citizen, Malice, and why Betsy is keeping her a secret. Betsy gets pretty defensive and claims that Malice hasn't broken any laws. Hasn't she, though? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess she hasn't yet broken any Krakoan laws. Unless we missed a panel of her, like, littering on Krakoa or something. It really doesn't matter, though. Because no sooner does Betsy turn her back than Emma Frost attacks her. You see, Emma's been maliced. Now, before Emma can jam a diamond dagger into Betsy's back, Quanon runs in with her psychic blade, runs it right through Emalice's throat, and right through that choker. Betsy and Psylocke have a difficult time dislodging the psychic knife from Emma's throat, and when they finally do, Quinan is shocked that Betsy is able to pick the thing up. 
because Quanon didn't think anyone else could. And I tell you, I'm glad she mentioned it because I probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. Then Professor X returns, having heard or witnessed this entire event. Uh, he isn't exactly pleased that Betsy would keep this from him, which, I mean, in all honesty here, it's kind of been Excalibur's gimmick this entire run. You know, do things, don't tell the council. I mean, he really shouldn't be surprised. They check in on Emma, and they deduce that she'll be okay. Uh, she retreated into a safe area of her mind, or something like that. Xavier informs the Psylocks that this act of malice, from malice, uh, has turned their little personal matter into a Krakoan security threat. He reminds us all that Krakoa has a way of dealing with lawbreakers, which is to say they go to the hole with Sabadooth. He mentions that this isn't a prison, to which Quinan disagrees. And uh, I gotta ask, I mean, who'd have thunk she'd ever be the voice of reason in a scene? Betsy pleads with the prof to let them handle this before any judgments are passed. And uh, she suggests that Malice may be unwittingly separated from her body. Xavier's like, okay, cool, we got the five. They can make her a new husk. But in any event, she's gonna have to go on trial for this attempt on Betsy's life. Magneto says that they won't go easy on her because of her mutation, to which I say, uh, careful, buddy, uh, you may one day have to eat those words. <clears throat> Sometime soon, probably. Oh, and it's worth noting that Malice is now inhabiting Quinan's psychic knife, which I didn't realize was possible, but in fairness, I didn't know that it wasn't either. So, there you go. Info page, and it's a bunch of text messages from Pete Wisdom to remind us all that the friggin' Coven Akaba is still a thing we need to worry about, because... That there's a story that refuses to end. Um, now, Betsy hasn't replied to any of these messages, though. In fairness to her, she's been dead-ish. Back to comics, and we're over at the Braddock Lighthouse, where Betsy is trying on clothes for the gala. And the scene kind of drags on a little bit. Um, you see, the gimmick here is that all of Betsy's old dresses were ordered when she was occupying Quanon's body. And, oh, you didn't know? Betsy used to occupy Quanon's body. They don't ever really mention that. So it's a good thing I'm here to remind you all that uh, at one point Betsy uh, inhabited or occupied Quinnon's body. Now, as much as I like Marcus Toe's artwork, there really should have been an effort made here to differentiate the body types of our ladies if we're trying to drive this point home. Because Betsy and Quinnon, and I mean even Rogue, who's also in the scene, they have like the, exa the exact same body build here. Um, so if the dresses fit... Quanon, it stands to reason that they'd fit Betsy as well. They look fairly, fairly similar here. Quanon then shows up to discuss the malice issue, to which Betsy says, Hey, I got all these old dresses, you want them? And Quanon's like, No, they're not my style. And so we shift scenes to a beach where they're burning them all. Okay, why do that? Um, I mean, over in Wolverine, we had this that, uh, that wonderful auction on Madripoor. I mean, you could auction these things off, right? Then again, it's not like Krakoa needs the extra scratch. Uh, we do know that money grows on trees here, literally. Anyway, Quanon and Betsy then decide to dive into the psychic knife to try and reason with Malice. And so in they go. Inside the knife is a nightclub, a club it turns out that Betsy is pretty familiar with. It's called the Violet Velveteen in Leeds, England, which is apparently not a real place. Uh, I guess it's a good thing there's a reference to purpleness in the name to, you know because that's kind of what we have to have. We might have forgotten which character we're reading about. Betsy heads to an isolated area of the club, and lo and behold, there sits Alice. 
Quinan suggests that she'll wait on the other side of the curtain to let Betsy do her thing. And so Betsy sits down across from Alice and invites her to make her home on Krakoa. Alice is annoyed that Betsy called her by name and begins making threats. Back on the beach, Betsy and Quinan begin to seize. Rogue and Jubilee, who have been sitting there mostly to remind us that they're part of this book's cast, they freak out a little bit. Quinan is shocked awake and tells the other two that Betsy and Malice are about to fight. Back inside, uh, Malice has remade the landscape into the dueling ring where Betsy was shattered to, you know, a billion Betsy bits by Iska during the opening round of the Festival of Swords. Betsy is like, oh, you know, pretty sneaky, sis, and uh, admits that she lost a battle here, but this was also the place where Krakoa won the war. From here, they fight. In the real world, Betsy continues to seize up. Malice then disappears from the astral background. Then, we realize that the choker necklace has manifested around Quanan's neck. Betsy wakes up and swipes the choker off of Quanan's neck, and it lands in the nearby bonfire, which, I guess, kills Malice? I mean, what a way to go, right? You're burning her to death. thats I don't know how you can do that to an incorporeal... Incorporal? However you say that word. Um, an ethereal being. There you go. In the very next panel, Malice in her Alice body pops out of her gold ball. Professor X is all, hey, good morning. You ready to spend eternity in the hole? Uh, Psylocke, Betsy, and Emma are able to persuade Charles not to exile her. Now we wrap up the issue with Malice watching the sunrise, or set, I don't know what time of day it is, while our narration waxes on about fresh starts. And that's where we leave it. Next stop for Excalibur is the Hellfire Gala, but next stop for us is uh, some more Madriporian marauding. So uh, look forward to that, but... That's a discussion for another day. Let's talk about this one. Well, we didn't go to Otherworld, so there's an automatic plus, right? Uh, you know, if I were the type to bait creators with a numbered rating system, this alone would have bumped the issue up at least two entire points. Um, but let's, let's talk about what actually did happen instead of what didn't. Malice gets a backstory. Um, is that our main takeaway here? Uh, you know... I will concede that it's been a very long time since I last read anything with Malice in it. I, I did a little bit of a research for our uh, fake-ass comics history that'll be coming up here, but um, I believe this is a whole new backstory for her. Um, and since that is the case, it's kind of boilerplate stuff, isn't it? I mean, she was a depressed, gothy teenager. And that's it. Um, she's also suicidal which would actually lead to Marvel leaving the number to the Suicide Prevention Hotline in astonishingly tiny print on the last page of the issue right below the Coming Soon graphic. Which I would assume, if I were a betting man, which I say time and again I am not, um, I would say 85 to 90% of the readers of this book don't even look at that page. So a little bit half-hearted. Uh, you'd think maybe Marvel would perhaps nix a house ad and make this a little bit more visible. But nah, Lord knows you gotta promote X-Corp. Um, by the way, if you need it, the number to the Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. So, now, on that tack here, we've got Malice McMalister, right? She's suicidal. She wants to die and not come back, right? That's kind of the thing here. She does not want to come back, and yet, they bring her back anyway. I don't know if they realized how this looked when they wrote it. Um, 
But, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we? We've talked about Last Wishes. We've talked about Mutant Wills, right? That was something that was brought up way back in the Crucible issue, X-Men number 7, when Nightcrawler decided to start his own mutant religion. He was talking to, he was talking to Scott about the Mutant Wills, like how people wanted to come back. We've seen in X-Force all the adjustments that Quentin Quire requested, right? Uh, from things, some cosmetic things, you know, uh, from not having hair grow in certain places so he didn't have to shave parts of himself, to things like having perfect 20-20 vision so he can wear glasses just as a fashion accessory. There is something to the mutant wills here, and that it does go to show that the five can perform, you know, they can do, they can, it, it, you know, it's Burger King, you know, you can have it your way, you know. Yet here, uh, we have the other side of the coin, and, and this kind of um, reminds me of uh, Domino over in X-Force, where when she died, she wanted to keep all of her harmful or problematic memories, you know, she wanted all that baggage because it was part of her. But she came back and was... Relatively speaking, happy-go-lucky, right? And she didn't have those memories. She didn't have memories of her time being flayed by Zeno, and uh, didn't didn't know that they, those memories even existed. So when, like Peter was saying, like you know, reminding her of her memories, she had absolutely no idea. Here we've got Malice McMalister, right? And I mean, Alice McAllister. Okay, um, <clears throat> okay. She wanted to stay dead. But Krakoa wasn't having it, and they brought her back anyway. We have touched on mutant suicide here, again, back in X-Force, with uh, Peter and Domino, where Peter just says, hey, let's just walk into the, into the ocean. You know, let's just walk in there. All of our pain will go away. Maybe they'll bring us back, maybe they won't, but it doesn't matter because we're in so much pain right now, and we don't want to feel this pain. It's a, it's a very heavy subject, of course. Um, but here, I mean... I don't know, I, I have weird feelings about this here. She didn't want to be, and yet she's being forced to be, you know? Uh, let's take a step back from that, and let's look at her apparent death scene here. Um, did they really burn her to death? I mean, that's cruel, isn't it? Like, can an essence without a body actually burn? Is the choker necklace like a proxy for a physical body? I don't know. It's a very cruel way to go. Nebulous and cruel. Now, speaking of bodies, uh, how did the Five make one for her that quickly? Did Cerebro already have a backup for her? Is this an old backup? Uh, since she is a legacy marauder, did they use a black market sinister the DNA body or whatever for this? And I mean, that also begs the question, why didn't we see more of Sinister in this issue, right? I don't know. Uh, Malice seems like she'd be right up the alley of the Hellions book, doesn't she? Um, don't know. Something else that stood out to me here is the Quiet Council's preoccupation with Otherworld. Now, we didn't go there, and thank heavens for that, but uh, we did get to talk about it a lot. And here, Professor X seems to think that Saturnine is the biggest threat to Krakoa. Well, maybe six months ago when we fumbled our way through the X of Tens Festival of Swords, maybe, but now? Now? Really? Saturnine? What about post-humanity? Ah, uh, the children of the vault? Hey, uh, how about them uh, unpredictable Iraqis? And anybody remember Orcus? 
What about Zeno? Ominous Verandy? Oh yeah, and those humans who fear and hate them? I mean... Nah, I mean, this is Excalibur, so of course the biggest threat out there is friggin' Saturnine. Come on, what, what are we even talking about here? Which brings me to my last point here. Um, this book feels like it's only interested in promoting things that happen in this book. And I mean, that's one way to do it, right? Uh, we gotta differentiate the, the absolute glut and bloat of the X-Men line right now, but... I don't know, this just feels short-sighted. It feels like it's missing so many other things that have been bubbling up since since this whole era started here. Um, it's hard for me to take it seriously. It really is. It just seems way too pleased with itself and uh, not interested in really anything else. I really don't know. It was pretty, though. It was pretty. Uh, Marcus Toe, fantastic work here. I did have that one issue with the body differentiation there. Uh, Betsy and Quanon... They looked very similarly sized. There was no apparent, no obvious difference in their physiques. So the dress thing, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, the more I hear about the Hellfire Gala, the less I'm looking forward to it. I, I gotta say. Um, hate to say it, but gotta say it. But I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, let's hop into our mailbag here. We actually have three back-end segments today. How about that? It's, a, it's you know, the sign of the times that we had to take a few days off, so uh, we got some stuff piling up. Now we're going to start with a message from our friend Damien. He's talking about cable number seven. He says, Hi, Chris. I'm back with my thoughts on cable number seven. I hope you're well. I am. Is it just me, or is Cable one of the only books to be dealing with the aftermath of the X of Ten's crossover? It seems like a weird place to see follow-up. Yes. <laughs> yes, on both cases there. Uh, yes, it is one of the only books handling stuff like this. And yes, it's a weird place to see follow-up. You'd figure that we would see it in some of the other books here, but alas, no. I mean, we are getting nods every now and again, right? Just today, in this issue of Excalibur, it's like, yeah, Gorgon's forever changed. It's like, well, where the hell is Gorgon? Let us see this guy. <laughs> Let us see the forever changed Gorgon, you know? Show, don't tell. I mean, that's kind of one of the big problems with this entire era. It's tell, don't show. Damien continues, I very much enjoyed this story and was most impressed by how well they reintroduced elements from much earlier in the run, but without confusing me. Sometimes I need a little hand-holding. And you're right, this is a, uh, the way they did this, um, it, it flowed very well, very organic. Of course, we did have the road bumps, right? We did have the road bumps, we had to get the, the light of Galador, right? We needed to deal with the Space Knights to get Cable his sword so he could do the Exitens thing. So that was the little road bump here, the speed bump in our path. But, Jerry Duggan is just so damn good. That, um, and I mean, Phil Noto, I mean, do we even need to talk about Phil Noto? He, he's phenomenal. But Jerry Duggan here, uh, you know, mind like, a, like an, a memory like an elephant here, doesn't forget any of these little details that need to be continued along here. So we come back in and it's like we never left, right? We didn't, we didn't miss a beat and it's just uh, an absolute treat to be following this book here. Damien continues. What I didn't understand was why Cable hid the involvement of Strife from everyone else. Why would he want to keep that a secret? It's not likely that his family would be unwilling to fight against Strife. Weird. I do trust Duggan and Noto to have a good reason, but I'm a little lost right now. And we do see a little bit of that in the next issue of Cable, where 
he uh, he I mean he talks to everybody he knows basically except for two. You know, he goes to Wolverine for help. He goes to Emma Frost for help. He goes to Rachel for help. He goes to Hope for help. He goes to Wildside for help. But he doesn't go to Cyclops and he doesn't go to Jean. So I think that is where the big secret is. I think he doesn't want Strife's parents, or I mean his parents, Strife's clone parents, I guess, to have to deal with this. I think he sees this as his, um, his mistake. And he mentions this uh, in subsequent issues here where he says, you know, I thought I killed him, but I didn't. I thought I wiped him. I thought I wiped his mind, but I didn't. You know, I thought I lobotomized him, but I I didn't. So I think he is um, he's in this weird stasis. You know, he's got this growing pains thing happening to him now. He's he's not racking up a lot of W's. He's losing a lot. He lost during the Festival of Swords. Right. He's. He was called, he got the fool card and took it to heart. Uh, He's not doing great. So I think he is just compounding failure, or perceived failure upon perceived failure upon perceived failure. And uh, he might be a little bit embarrassed. I think he is taking a lot of the responsibility onto himself. And uh, I don't think he wants to let his parents down. I I think that could be it. He just sees strife as his problem because he let it get to this point. Damien continues It's just a shame there are only three issues left in this series It's great that Duggan is moving over to X-Men But I hope Noto also sticks around the X-Books They are such a good team Here, here uh, On both things there uh, Duggan on the X-Men I'm very, very pleased about that And Noto, if we can get him a spot Please do it <laughs> Please do it Because Hell, put him on X-Men <laughs> Put him on X-Men with Jerry Duggan here I would uh, love to see it Damien wraps up with, anyway, until I get a clone from the future to help me catch up on all of Chris's podcasts, make mine X-lapsed. Well, if we can get a clone of someone who can update Marvel Unlimited, I think we'd all be better off, right? I mean, they are getting very weird with their release schedule here. I'm trying to, I'm still on the outside of it, because I, I don't read anything digitally, you guys know me, but I'm trying to keep abreast at least of when the books are coming out. So I'm like scanning things to see, you know, when did stuff hit? And it's gotten very, very sporadic. It felt like when we were talking about um, the Ex of Swords, uh, there was like a regular release rotation, you know? As I was covering them here on the show, they were coming out like in real time on Marvel Unlimited. It was like the perfect thing, right? Then when that ended, it's like we would go like two or three weeks without anything. And then we'd get like one issue. We'd get like an issue of like X-Factor out of nowhere. It's like so weird. But hopefully, hopefully, Marvel gets uh, gets better on top of that. But uh, thank you so much, Damien. And uh, I was so pleased when I woke up to your messages uh, over this past weekend. Uh, I've been looking forward to getting to them. So really, really means a lot. And uh, definitely look forward to talking about them in future episodes. Next up, we got Evan. He's talking about X-Factor number seven. He says... I was guessing the Morrigan, but I didn't know whether I ever got that on record, so I guess you'll have to trust me. I I will trust you, Evan. I'm sure you said that. You might have even said it to me. (laughs) He continues, My first thought with Prodigy was maybe Mara wanted the original for his power set to do something. But then you reminded me that he was depowered, so that conspiracy theory fizzles out. But I am curious about the truth about what's going on with him. Too bad the series is ending soon. 
yeah. We're going to talk about that during our little news break in a minute, but yeah, X Factor's going away. And that sucks. <laughs> Somehow X Factor's leaving us, Cable's leaving us, and Excalibur goes on. And we're getting X Corp on top of it. Oh, boy. Uh, Evan says, this was a great cliffhanger. And uh, yes, it really, really was. It was a great cliffhanger here. We didn't know what was what. Uh, the way it all worked itself out was a little bit confusing because it felt like we went backwards only to go forwards and then we kind of approached the cliffhanger scene like in the middle. It was very, very odd. But, I mean, when you read it all through, it's it's perfectly fine. It just for me, it kind of jarred me a little bit. But um, the cliffhanger that Evan is talking about is... Dakin, Dakin, uh, going into the uh, living room Or the movie-watching room of the X-Factor Boneyard And uh, meeting up with iBoy and Prodigy And finding out that everybody's dead Everybody else, that is They're, they're alive, of course Now, Evan continues uh, This is talking about Wolverine here He says, as for superhero or supervillain auctions I can't think of a specific story with an auction But in a very early issue uh, In an early issue of New Avengers Volume 1, not Volume 87, that is the Wrecker stole back his magic crowbar from a collector and took the man's daughter hostage. I love stories like that. I, I, I mean, because that's something that me and Reggie would talk about a lot is collecting. You know, and Reggie even had his own series of programs on this channel that are still here on the channel if you'd like to find them. Um, I, Reggie's comic stories, the last uh, several episodes of that are about collecting, and then he... He started his own, you know, collecting, uh, collecting stories series, and I believe it only went one or maybe two. I think it's just one episode, honestly. But there are several episodes of him talking with collectors, and uh, the first one it was me, and uh, it was basically us recording a conversation that we would have, and we had many, many times because we we obsessed about collecting and collectability and. He and I were very different in our comic collecting, but uh, we were both collectors in, at heart. Um, my collections are comics. You know, that's uh, duh, right? Reggie's collections were uh, New York World's Fair memorabilia. And I tell you, he showed me some pictures of this stuff, and it was just uh, mind blowing and just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So, what I'm getting at here and taking the, <laughs> the scenic route is. Um, Collectability is something I think a lot of us can relate to And so when we see that a magic crowbar was bought by a private collector in the Marvel Universe That tickles me You know, the very idea of it, because of course they would, right? I mean, if you were to find, you know, go back to when Wolverine didn't have his adamantium And he was leaving, you know, bone cloth fragments everywhere If you were to find one of those It would stand to reason that somebody would want it, right? You'd collect that thing because it's a thing to collect so I, I'm just a huge fan of that And it's funny I think it was like a week after um, We read that issue of Wolverine With the auction in Madripoor The Legacy House um, I covered an issue of Generation X Volume 2 On Generation X Labs To where Quentin Quire uh, Hindsight and um, Morph Went to an auction So that kind of blew my mind Because when uh, when I talked about that issue of Wolverine I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen something like this before But it's so obvious, I must have seen something like this before And then just a couple days later Or maybe a week later It's, hey, we're back at an auction house How about that? But um, thank you so much for writing in, Evan It really, 
really means a lot. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about the news here. We're just going to touch on some of these things here. We're not going to go too deep. The first thing is uh, the trial of Magneto. I joked about Magneto maybe, you know, having to eat his words during the synopsis of this issue here. Now, this is a series or a mini-series that's going to be coming out after the Hellfire Gala because, of course, Marvel had to spoil something that's going to happen in, like, a month and a half in the Hellfire Gala. And uh, Magneto is going to be put on trial for it. Now, a lot of us, when, uh, when they announced this, uh, they gave us that um, redacted Reign of X bloat timeline of the summer, right? And a lot of people were able to make out the words, the trial. I, I believe Damien is the one that brought that to my attention here, because I, I didn't know what it was. I, I wasn't sure what it said. And so we all kind of brainstormed, like, who might be going on trial, right? And a lot of us were sure, well, not sure, but a lot of us were hopeful that it was going to be uh, the Scarlet Witch. We were hoping it was going to be Wanda, the Pretender, right? And it was right around this time that uh, we looked at the we looked at that one page in the Strange Academy book where Magneto and Beast both invite the Scarlet Witch to Krakoa, and it was like, oh, maybe there's some uh, fire to this here smoke, right? Well, no, <laughs> it's the trial of Magneto. He's gonna do something untoward at the Hellfire Gala, it would appear, and. Uh, I don't know. I hear that X-Factor will play a big role in that miniseries, which takes us to our next piece of news, that uh, X-Factor is ending with the Hellfire Gala issue, I believe issue 10. So we've got two more issues of X-Factor to discuss until it's uh, until it's done here. Um, and I do have a quote here from Leah Williams. Somebody had, uh, Somebody had written to her on Twitter, I believe, to say how much they enjoyed the book and uh, was sad to hear it was ending. And so Leia wrote back, I got the news about the book ending while scripting issue 9, so it immediately became a priority to resolve everything I could in a finite amount of space. Well, you don't need me to tell you that that sucks. Uh, for a few reasons. Uh, first, it's a good book, right? Uh, I started out hating it. <laughs> I mean... Uh, issue two uh, was one of the, the books I hated the most out of any books that I've covered on the show. But it's grown on me, and I've really come to appreciate it and look forward to it and just really like it a lot. The second thing uh, is that X Factor is one of the very few books in this line that has a reason to exist, right? I mean, they have a purpose. They set things up. They had the, you know, the fleet seeds. They were going to be on these, uh, these missions. They were going to be private investigators. They were going to confirm deaths. I mean, they actually had a reason to exist. But no, we cannot have good things, nice things. We can't have nice things. The last bit of news here is um, perhaps another spoiler. Um, a one-shot by Al Ewing called Cable Reloaded. And if you've seen the promotional art for this, it is, in fact, Old Man Cable. Um, now, this is going to be tying in with Guardians of the Galaxy and S.W.O.R.D., a crossover there. Uh, it's called, like, The Last Annihilation or The Last Armageddon, something like that. I've already pre-ordered the issues of Guardians of the Galaxy that lead into this, so we can maybe discuss them as we get closer to it. But we will, of course, be covering this uh, this annihilation, final annihilation crossover with Guardian Sword and Cable Reloaded. I don't know if this is giving away how the uh, the Noto Duggan series is going to end, 
I feel like Marvel realized that they may, maybe lifted their skirt a little bit too much with this one and were quick to be like, wait, 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 no, 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 this doesn't say anything. You know, this doesn't mean anything. This is after, this is a totally different thing, which I mean might be them protesting too much or it may be the truth. Who, who could even tell, right? But those are our uh, bits of news here. Um, we're gaining two titles, at least for, you know, a little bit, and we are losing yet another. So that's that. Um, if you have any news that you think we can use, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. It's seldom that I will put myself in a position where I have to look at comic book news sites. So <laughs> I'm trying to get better about that. I'm trying to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit less precious. But uh, it's a process, and it's baby steps. Now, this will take us to the final segment of this program here. And it's a... Uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a little while here, and it was inspired by a letter, a message that I got on Facebook, but not to the 90s X-Men group, but to my old Chris's on Infinite Earths group, which is still a group, and it has, like, somehow it's like 500 people following it. I haven't the foggiest idea how people are following that page still. I haven't really done anything on it in a long time. But there's an inbox there that I forgot was a thing, and I was over there and I saw it. And uh, somebody had written in, and I don't remember their name, so I apologize. They just said that uh, I'll refer to myself quite often as a fake-ass comics historian. And they wrote in with a very kind letter saying that I was selling myself short and calling myself that because I provide, I provide information and I, and I provide, uh, you know, context and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you mentioning that. But um, fake-ass comics historian is a uh, tongue-in-cheek thing. It's a joke. I've seen, like, uh, on social media, the rise of the self-proclaimed comics scholar. And to me, that's kind of loaded in a way. It's, it, I don't know, I might just be projecting here, but I feel like there's a, an air of superiority in, in making such a statement, and that's not something I would ever, I would ever endeavor to do. Um, I feel like we're all just fans here. Um, there may be things about the industry and comics history that I know that other people might not, but there's things about the industry and comics lore that people know that I don't. So we're all kind of just in this together. We're all just sharing ideas, sharing stories, sharing memories. And to um, label yourself in such a way, um, I don't know, I think that kind of just misses the point of the fandom here. You're putting yourself above the, the rank-and-file comic fan, and that's just not something I want to do. I mean, I love it when this show is a conversation and less of a lecture, right? I, I always want I always want feedback. I always want conversation and engagement. I love talking about these things with people. I don't want this to be me talking at other people. So I've come to call myself a fake-ass comics historian because I love comics history. I would never say I'm your one-stop one-stop shop for it. I would never say that I am, you know, some sort of a repository for it. I've got a body of work. A lot of people have a body of work, but it's all about the conversation. It's all about us talking and having fun. And uh, if if we learn something, great. If we're able to teach something, that's great too. But it's all just a conversation. So that's why I refer to myself as a fake-ass comics historian. And, um, Anybody listening can be an honorary fake-ass comics historian as well, if you would, uh, if you would like to. But uh, that's going to get us to this new segment. We're just going to call it Fake-Ass Comics History. And since today we spent so much time getting to know Malice, 
I figure, why not go all the way back to her beginning here and uh, give the quick and dirty on uh, Malice McMalister. Now, her first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 210, had an October 1986 cover date. This one is a fairly popular issue. It's probably one of the more recognizable covers of the day here. It's the, you know, go-ahead-make-our-day cover. It's pretty good-looking there. Uh, she was created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. Her real name was originally unknown. And it was actually revealed in this very issue of Excalibur. So how about that? We are holding history in our hands. Now, she was one of Mr. Sinister's legacy marauders. Uh, she would make the scene by taking over Dazzler's psyche. The rest of the legacy marauders at this time were busy uh, with the mutant massacre. Now, Malice was discovered, or suspected anyway, during a Lila Cheney concert. Dazzler was kind of in the background, but wound up upstaging Cheney. And uh, it's worth noting here that Dazzler was also wearing a very fashionable neck choker at the time. Now, Cheney knew something was amiss, and so she called in the X-Men for an assist. Now, upon arrival at the concert, Dazzler was just going nuts. Malice would then body jump into Wolverine, and this would send him into a berserker rage until he is taken down by Dazzler, who is recovering. Then Malice would body jump again into Rogue. Psylocke was able to deduce exactly what was going on at this point, or at least make an educated guess. Malice would then vacate Rogue and attach herself to Storm at this point. Storm was able to fight her off, and Malice popped out and just went to a nearby body, you know, it's the civilian, to make a getaway. Malice would later be tasked with tracking down Polaris. Now, Polaris was retired from the X-Men at this point and was living with Havoc somewhere off the grid. Now, while Havoc was away, Malice would make her move, taking over Lorna's psyche. Then, Malice, as Polaris, would defeat the rest of the Legacy Marauders in battle, after which she declared herself to be their new leader. Later, the Marauders would make an attempt to take out Madeline Pryor. This would be unsuccessful, though she would be hospitalized. Malice, as Polaris, would lead the Marauders into the hospital to attempt to finish the job, and there she would have an awkward run-in with Havoc. Later, Malice would attempt to disassociate herself from Polaris, only to find out that she was unable to vacate. Now, this is something that Mr. Sinister suspected would happen, but didn't bother to inform Malice McMalister when he gave her the task. Following Inferno, Polaris was slowly able to regain control of her body and psyche. Around this time, she would be kidnapped by Zaladane and taken to the Savage Land, and I tell you, I could think of no worse punishment, except maybe Otherworld. Malice was thought to be destroyed at this point by Zaladane draining Lorna of her magnetic powers. But she would come back, now this time while Lorna was part of X-Factor. Only this time she sought Havoc as her host. Now Lorna would beat Alex as no, Malice as Alex up real good, attempting to get the entity to leave Havoc and re-enter her own body. Malice couldn't choose, however. And so Mr. Sinister chose for her by killing her. For a while, anyway. We'd see, uh, we'd next see Malice much later, like after M Day, after Endangered Species, like right around the time of the birth of Hope Summers. Here, Sinister would send Malice to take over the psyche of Karima Whatserface, the Omega Sentinel. She would actually be uploaded into Karima via email, if you can believe it. Sinister wanted to use Malice to destroy Destiny's diaries. You remember when those were a thing? I remember being very excited about that, and then they uh, kind of forgot that that was what Extreme X-Men was supposed to be all about. 
Now, Malice would come back again following X- Avengers vs. X-Men. Now she would take over Cyclops and fight with Spider-Man. This was in that A plus X team-up series mess, if you remember that. Now, Spider-Man was able to separate Malice from Cyclops and even gave Scott the gift of Malice in a box. Evidently, during the recent Rosenberg run, uh, Malice was back with the Marauders, slaughtering Morlocks. Chamber, who was the leader of the Morlocks at this point, would burn the Marauders to death. Which brings us to right here and right now. And, um... I guess the malice that uh, made Sue Storm go into her bondage gear was a different malice then. Hmm. <laughs> oh, well. But uh, that'll do it for today's episode here. If you'd like to be part of the show, uh, reach out, say hello. I would love for you to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can also join us on Facebook for some conversation. We are 90sXmen over there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and all that good stuff. It would really, really mean a lot. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend around three-quarters of an hour with me today. It really, really means a lot. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.